This episode today is a must listen. Imagine, if you will, that you've been in a gang, you've actually pulled the trigger and you've taken someone's life and you spend 22 years in prison. Our guest today is that guy and we have in-depth conversations about all of that including where he's at today, both physically, mentally, and spiritual. Make sure you listen in to every word of today's episode. Welcome to Seek, Go, Create. We redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. We're sharing topics, stories, and conversations that allow us to rethink how we live, work, and lead. This is your host, Tim Winders. I'm a performance coach and author who specializes in helping executive teams and entrepreneurial leaders maximize their potential. We want to hear from you. If you're listening in, we want to hear from you. Go to SeekGoCreate.com and give us your best email address so that we can connect and learn from each other. Plus, we'll make sure you never miss an episode, and we are always giving away bonuses, extras, and we're about to be giving away merchandise, so go there, give us your email address, and uh, we will look forward to connecting with you there. Today, we have Quan Huynh as our guest, and let me give you this bio. Quan spent 22 years of his life behind bars. The amazing thing is, is if you look at him, if you're watching this on video, if you're listening, you can't tell this, he looks like he's barely 22 years old. So, so, so that's what's amazing about it. But anyway, in 1999, he shot and killed another man in a gang-related incident in Hollywood, California. As he served a life sentence, he found his freedom from within. He wishes to share that freedom with others. We're going to dig deep into that story, where he's been, where he's at now, all that's going on. Quan, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm so, so glad to have you. My first question is usually something about an elevator pitch or what, you know, if someone asks you what you do, and I want to get to that. But there's a statement that I read in your book. We're going to talk more about it later. But it says, I was not born a murderer. Can you expand on that and maybe talk about, you know, at one point it might have been your identity. Now I don't believe it is. Let's start with that instead of your elevator pitch. We'll get to that later. So I was not born a murderer. Respond to that. Yeah, um, it was during my life sentence when I when the the light started to come on uh, is when I realized you know I was um, was I was just asking myself these questions how did I get here and um, one book in particular at the time was uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity and he, there was this passage that really resonated with me about the choices we make can either turn us into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. And it just stuck with me. Um, and I ended up carrying that quote with me everywhere. But then it was just a reminder that I was not born a murderer. That I took a long series of choices down the wrong path and continued series of 
wrong choices, which ultimately um, culminated in me thinking it was okay to shoot and kill another living, breathing human being. But on the flip side of that, once I realized that, then I realized I could also transform my inner world by making intentional, correct choices from then on out for the rest of my life. And that's um, basically what I tried to apply. And that is how I found uh, my just total sense of liberation and freedom years before they paroled me from my life sentence. Wow. You know, um, in podcast land, we usually take, a lot of people will take some clip from the middle of the podcast and put it at the beginning to kind of grab people. I just want to say this to you and the listener. If what you said doesn't grab grab the listener and draw them into what we're about to discuss, then I think they kind of need to do a quick checkup because there was so much power in what you said. All right. I, I, want, to, I want to kind of leave that there. I do want to mention that at the time of recording this, you just had a book that was released, Sparrow in the Razor Wire, Sparrow in the Razor Wire, and the subtitle is Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence. And I want to let you know, I got that book about 24 hours ago when it was released, and I'm two-thirds of the way through, and I'm really annoyed that I couldn't finish it before we talked, but man, it was just, I, I kept being drawn in because I know that there's a deeper story that it's going into. Give us just a brief glimpse into the book, but I want to go into it more later. So just give us a quick overview because I got a lot of questions. I want to back up and kind of talk about how you came to where you were in prison and all those choices you just talked about. But tell us briefly about the book, but we're going to come back to it later. Sure. Uh, the book is written for... Uh men that are doing long or lifetime sentences and in it i'm just sharing with them uh how did i you know basically turn into a hellish creature but then how did i uh, come to a point in my life where i wanted to become you know as c.s lewis says like a heavenly creature so um i wrote it in a way where i know most men in there when we started doing groups uh i noticed most men felt more uh my message resonated with them more when i'm sharing of my own vulnerability and my own challenges and that's the way i wrote the book i didn't write it from a place like oh uh, i'm home now this is what you need to do to get here it was not like that it's just more like this is where i continue to mess up and this is where i started to find my way back out yeah it's it's interesting you you talk about arrogance and cockiness and all but to me the book is just dripping with humility mm. and you mentioned yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and ask a little bit more of a deeper question before we get into some other things you mentioned that the audience for the book is probably people that are currently incarcerated all right i'm a business guy entrepreneur business guy have done this for 30 plus years i coach and work with a lot of them to me don't you think that there's a lot of lessons for people? Well, to some degree, a lot of people are incarcerated, even though they're not behind bars. <laughs> so who else, who else 
can benefit from yeah. this? You know, um, it's I, I, I'm glad that you actually even brought that up because I know like some of my preliminary feedback for the book where people like, you know, that I've read it and they said, Quan, this book is much more than just for people that are incarcerated. There's so much that you have me challenging in myself um, that I thought, you know, okay, the bias, this is a friend, this is someone that knows me, this is a colleague. But then like these past couple of days, um, just uh, since the book's been released and people have been reading, like uh, I had a friend call me last night and she was just crying on the phone. She listened to the whole Audible all the way to the wee hours of the morning and then just called me last night. Um, and like, I know when I wrote it, I go, then when I can take a step back, I go, you know what? There are some universal truths that I uncovered in my own journey in writing it. And those were basically the ones, I, you know, my I wanted to share with, uh, men inside, but then um, in now looking things over and in, in hearing feedback from people, you know, like you just said, like we all live in some sort of prison, real or imagined. Um, yeah. And we're all a product, like you mentioned earlier, of choices we've made. And anyway, there I've, I've got some questions that we're going to dive into those things. But before we do that, I want you to now tell us what do you do now? Let me, uh, here's a, here's some words I saw on your website. <clears throat> Author, warrior, magician, and mountain of goodness is a description that, that someone said. It, it, is that a good description of you or what, what do you tell people? What are you doing now? Bring us up to speed and then we're going to um... back up. Sure. Uh, right now, I work as the post-release uh, program manager for uh, the Five Ventures, a nonprofit that helps uh, men and women with criminal histories to transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm also a, uh, a business owner. I created uh, my first uh, commercial cleaning company six months after I paroled. And yeah, now I have the, the book out that warrior magician and a mountain of goodness that was a tagline that was given to me in there when I was uh, facilitating after the light started to come on I was involved with this group called uh, the alternatives to violence project and I was one of the facilitators in it and during the process like on the third day before we leave for the workshop people we had these things called um, affirmation sheets and people would write it and assign into it like a yearbook of each of the things and it was written to me by one of my favorite uh, co-facilitators from the streets. We had volunteers that came in and she wrote, you are a mighty warrior, a magician, and a mountain of goodness. You're one of the greatest treasures of my life. And I just love, and I kept that. I still have it. And I just, so now I could say he's been described as that. I don't know. I just, I, I, when I saw that, I just, it just tugged at, at my heart and my soul. And I go, man, I want to aspire to be like this like she sees it i don't see it i want to be like this well it, it could be descriptive it also could be prophetic you know it could be your tagline it could be things you aspire to but it sure does sound better than that description that i used when i started off the interview you know when and like we talked about there's so many things that feed into our identity and, you know, we'll talk more about it, but, you know, you had gang member, you know, uh, and other things attached to you. I think warrior, magician, and I love that mountain of goodness, because from reading, 
there was, you use the term darkness quite a bit. There was a lot of darkness that you had inside. And to me, my observation is, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, but today you seem to be operating at a place, out of a place of peace internally, whereas there was a lot of not peace uh, some time ago. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. It was like a lot of chaos and turmoil and and uh, loneliness and anger and rage. Yeah, that's what I operated out of before. Right. And so the value <clears throat> that I believe, and I'm going to speak directly to a listener that's going, well, I've never done anything that would put me in jail or anything like that. However, I know in our culture and society today that there are large numbers of people that have chaos and turmoil inside. And we can all learn from people that have moved closer to being at peace. I'm not sure that total peace, some people we can say that. I mean, there's always things going on, but so I admire that and I want myself and the listener to be able to learn from that. So you gave a quote, St. Francis of Assisi, that seems pretty important to you. Why don't you share that with us before we get into some of your background and what, uh, what kind of led you on your interesting journey? Yeah, um, one of his favorite quotes that resonated with me when I had discovered uh, writings by him. Uh, he wrote, um, I have been all things unholy. If God can work through me, surely he can work through anyone. Hmm. All right. So now he was a saint, so he, he had to been good all his life, right? He never had any <laughs> issues. <laughs> no, I think, and, and, and that's the, that was like, I've always been a bookworm. Um, and inside prison, I, I loved reading like all different types of books, uh, but mostly business books. But somehow along the journey around that time of the transformation for me, um, I stumbled upon books upon the saints. And, you know, in particular, St. Francis of Assisi, who um, from what I read in some of the, the accounts, he came from a family of wealthy merchants. Uh, he liked to drink and carouse. And one night, uh, him and some of his friends ended up uh, killing somebody. But um, from what I read, and they, they said, but because his family of their influence and their wealth, uh, St. Francis was released the very next day. Um, but then that's when he later on, where his conversion came about and he walked away from all of that and founded the Franciscan order, which was just, I don't know, for me, it just, um, yeah, it, it hit me like, wow, I look at this now. And then it gave me just that small spark of hope in there. Like my life doesn't have to be ugly like this. I don't have to die like this. So yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very good. And obviously I'm, I'm going to let you, we're going to back up all of this, I think that we're about to discuss is in the book, so we're not going to give away all of it, but I want to kind of hit some of the high points. Uh, you talk about where you grew up. I thought it was really kind of funny you being in Utah and Catholic and all that, but let's back up and let's let's just spend just a couple minutes with kind of your upbringing and, and some things that were kind of forming in you early. So why don't you, let's back up and do that. And we're probably going to move pretty quickly up to the time that you spent time in prison because I think there's so many lessons at that point is when you really made some what I call significant change from what I can read. So, but give us your background. Tell us about where you were growing up and, and some significant things that occurred. Sure. Uh, I was uh, born in Vietnam 
uh, right before the fall of our country, before the Vietnam War was over, though, uh, we came and settled in the United States, um, Provo, Utah, of all places. My father had actually come to the United States to train with uh, the U.S. Special Forces in the late 60s, and he attended the military academy in South Vietnam. So, um, which happened to be my mother's side of the family owned the apartments where the cadets stayed. So that's how they had met. Um, when we lost the country, my mom had never seen snow before. So my father wanted to settle, you know, in our new homeland, but take her to a place where there was snow. Um, so it was just, you know, I was the firstborn, um, several months old, I had my mom and my father and we, settled in Provo, Utah. That's how we uh, ended up there. Yep, Roman Catholic in uh, Mormon country. So were y'all Roman Cat? Was there a heavy population of Roman Catholic in Vietnam? I guess I wasn't aware yes, of that. Yes, because, yeah, because of the French influence uh, uh, and the French colonization. So uh, the country was predominantly either Catholic or Buddhist um, and yeah, so I just, I grew up uh, knowing the only thing of my faith is being Roman Catholic. Yeah, and so I don't really see that there's going to be any conflict. You're going to have an easy life growing up. Vietnamese, Roman Catholic in Provo, Utah. So everything was easy for you, right? Yeah, right after the Vietnam War. So yeah, <laughs> Right I mean, after the Vietnam the War. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, no, it, was... Um, it was during, you know, I think, you know, don't get me wrong, the vast majority of people in Utah are kind and caring and loving. I remember like I had some of my best memories as a kid with some of my friends in elementary, but I also um, experienced quite a bit of what I now know to be racism. Uh, I remember uh, being with my uncle one day when we were just uh, getting gas in his car as a little, little boy sitting in the car. I remember another car pulled up next to us and started cussing at my uncle, said, get out of, uh, get out of the country, gooks. Uh, you guys uh, don't belong here. Um, and, you know, another incident, uh, well, the main incident that left an indelible mark on me was with my younger brother when we were playing in the ditches. Uh, we had this game we like to play where we would collect the popsicle sticks from, uh, and we make a raft out of it, and we let it float on the the um, creeks because the in the summertime the snow would melt and the creeks get filled up with icy cold water the summers are hot so we could just walk down the creeks stay ice cold for our feet but then we put our gi joes on top and just follow them and they're just down, going down the river but um some older kids and some adults like their uncles or their fathers or something were at the top of the the ledge and they started throwing rocks down to us told us get out of our country get out of here um you know, and there was a fence between us. So I don't know, my brother and I, I guess we were brave. We thought we were brave. You know, I was, what, eight, he was six. And I, um, those kids jumped the fence and began to chase us. So we ran up the other side. Um, I dropped some of my GI Joes. My brother stops to pick them up. And the kids catch up to us and punch my brother. He falls down and they just shove dirt into his mouth. And I just stood there. I didn't do anything. I didn't know what to do. And I just only cried. Um, but I remember when we went home and let my father know what had happened, uh, he just like said, like, where were you? Like, how did you let this happen to your younger brother? You're supposed to protect them. And I was just ashamed, like totally ashamed. Like I let my family down, I let my brother down. Um, I, let my, my, I let my dad down. 
Um, yeah, that that was uh, that was a pretty significant event. After that, where then any time when it became close to somebody insulting my family or, or 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 insulting my race, after that it became where I had to feel I had to overcompensate and protect and just lash out violently at at, at um, other kids. Yeah, and uh, I I know from the book that um, I don't know if the word is honor. You know, I grew up in the southern United States, and there was this, um, in general, a quickness to fight, a quickness to battle. And, you know, from hearing you and reading some in the book, it it seems as if at times you were reluctant, but there was stages in your life that you kind of crossed over, and it became the natural response um, and I think some things related to your father even led into that later. Why don't you kind of continue down the progression? Because I, I do think that those are some of the choices that you talk about quite a bit. So, so keep going and talk more because I know your father was significant. Fathers are significant to us. Yeah. Really, fathers are a reflection of our relationship with our Heavenly Father in many ways. And many times that's good. Sometimes it's challenging, you know. So tell us about your father and that relationship and, and the impact that that had. Sure. Uh, my father, you know, when we came to the United States, his first job was as a custodian at a local supermarket. I think he worked the graveyard shift. And uh, with his first paycheck, I know my mom said that what he bought was a bike. So he could get to work faster. And that's how we started on um, in our new country. But uh, he ended up working at the coal mines in the city of Price, the nearby city of Price. But then he created uh, the Vietnamese Refugee Association, where he wanted to help um, refugees from our, our, our country get adjusted to their new homeland. Um, so my father on the weekends would drive to neighboring states like Wyoming or Colorado, or just drive further down into um, other places. And he'd help Vietnamese families fill up the paperwork for the DMV or social security or whatever documents they needed. And as a young boy, I got to go on a car, these car rides with him because I was the oldest and it would just be me and my dad all Saturday. And I looked at it as this is my, t- my special time to be with my dad. I could answer him all, ask him all these questions, get my life's questions answered. and. Yeah, I, but I did not understand. I didn't understand the significance of what he's trying to tell me. Like when I said, well, how much do you get paid for this job? And he goes, I don't get paid. I do this for free. And it didn't make sense to me. Like, why? Why would you do this for free? As a little boy, I didn't I didn't grasp it at the time. Uh, he was also, because of his work with the Vietnamese Refugee Association, though, he, he became pretty popular with the local uh, congressmen and, and senators. They started to come to our house quite a bit. And because my father had went to the military academy in Vietnam, uh, these government officials told me, uh, Quan, when you grow up, um, we want you to be just like your father. You're going to be the first Vietnamese American to go to West Point. So, you know, what little boy doesn't want to be like their father? So I said, okay. Um, I remember as a little, even a little kid, I, I, I opened books on West Point, see like the gray uniforms and I imagine myself, yeah, when I'm older, I'm a, be in that uniform, I'm gonna be just like my father. Um, but then he gets diagnosed with uh, leukemia 
when I think I was about eight years old, eight, nine years old, right there, his condition gets worse. And we decide to move to California because his family member, his extended family uh, lived out here in California. So we moved out to Southern California. Um, this is the first time that I go to school with kids that are not predominantly white. I, you know, now there's African-Americans, Hispanics, other Vietnamese, but um, even with the other Vietnamese, I did not feel like I fit in because the kids uh, said I was whitewashed because I couldn't speak Vietnamese well. A lot of them couldn't speak English well. And I just remember feeling like there's something wrong with me, like where I don't fit in with people um, and, and, and people, you know, I, I, I'm not really recognized or accepted. It just, there's, there's, there's just something wrong with me. Do you think that the aspect of not fitting in, I, I know there's other variables that led to what ended up, you know, the choices you made, but how significant is not fitting in? Uh, it's depending on what age, I think because of not feeling like, like I fit in and then continuing to feed that narrative later on and, and, and mm -hmm. looking for um, confirmation in, in other experiences and then tying that into part of my narrative is where mm -hmm. it became a lot more significant than it needed to be. Right. Yeah. And because, because there are times that we begin I don't know if it's attracting things, you know what I mean? It's almost like in reading your story, it's almost like, I know you were highlighting the things that led to what happened. It's almost like, okay, the path you were going down, that was almost the only way it could end up unless something drastic changed. Now, there was another significant thing. Tell us about your father because the, I know the, the, the things you discuss around his passing and all seemed to be uh, also a pretty impactful time for you. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so his condition started to get worse. And, um, you know, I, we're, we were raised Roman Catholic. I, I, I put us in catechism classes out here. And um, as... Our, the day of my first communion started coming up. This is when I was 13. Um, I, my mom, you know, one of the few times I ever saw my mom break down and cry or just cry in general. Um, she it was one day that we pulled up to the hospital to visit my father and she just said, the doctors said your father doesn't have much longer to live. And she just started crying. And I felt so helpless. I didn't know what to do only put my hand on her shoulder we didn't know how to express any type of um love or anything to each other like that uh and it just took me by surprise to ever see someone that i've never seen cry before cry um but i told myself you know what our first communion is coming up when i eat that bread i am going to pray uh to god to let my father live and you know he'll grant this because this is our first communion um so uh, our first communion that that year also fell on Mother's Day, and I woke up that Sunday morning, and my younger sister uh, tells me that my father had died the night before. So um, 
in my mind, I just thought, crap, God killed my dad because he didn't want to grant my prayer. Um, there must be something really wrong with me. Like, why would God not grant this prayer? Mm. So, yeah. Right. And so, and how old were you then? What, 13? 13. Okay. So, so the, so the items that began occurring after that, you, we won't go into all the details here, but, you know, you spent some time in the juvenile system. You know, shortly after that, there was an event that put you in the, in the prison system. Have you put any thought into, because one of the words I wrote down, I'm taking notes here as you're talking, is the word disappointments. Mm -hmm. And many times in life, we feel that disappointments begin piling up. We have expectations because, you know, to give people the rest of the story, you did not get to go to West Point as was one of the dreams. And, and you know, obviously you prayed for a healing that did not occur, at least it it, uh, I mean, he actually is fully healed now, but in the natural world, he's not here. He's not healed. My guess is there's other disappointments with fitting in and all that. Have you, have you put any thought, Quan, into is there anything that you could have done that could have reversed your course from 13 to, I think, 20 is 2021 is when, you know, the events that put you in federal prison occurred. But is there anything that could have gone on? I mean, is there any way to look back and go, wow, if I had done blank? Yeah, there's, I mean, like any time along that way, um, you know, uh, after my father passed away, when I look back now, like the whole family was devastated. None of us ever talked about it again. My mom never once asked, how are you feeling? Um, me, my brother and my sister, you know, like I only looked at it from my, my perspective. My brother and sister were younger than me. They were most likely way more devastated, you know. Um, like in reading this book now, like my sister recently calls me. She read the book and just said, I didn't know dad did all that stuff. Like, I don't remember the Vietnamese Refugee Association. I say, you don't? And she's like, no. She goes, the dad I knew was always in and out of the hospital. So for me, I was like, oh, my God, how heartbreaking is this? She only knew my dad like that. She didn't get to see the um, the amazing impact that he did. So that broke my heart just to hear that. My own uh, younger sister never knew this. Um, but, you know, it's just after that and after, you know, choosing to go with the wrong friends and hanging out and, and, and then going into the street life and then continuing to choose after my first arrest to not own any of it, um, blaming the world and God and the American justice system and then getting out and choosing to, to immerse myself deeper into the gang life and then getting arrested and choosing to, to not take ownership in any of that. So it was a continued series of wrong choices that at, at any time, if I had chosen, okay, you know what? I want to choose to go a different path or I want to choose to have a better, um, a better way of, of showing up or living in this world. But it's just, I didn't want to face that part of me that felt, you know what, maybe there is something really wrong with me, or maybe uh, I really don't fit in in this world. So I'll just choose the, the easy way to go about this. Yeah. What does, what does the gang life, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm 
white dude that grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta and I don't have a clue about any of this. So, and I'm guessing some of the listeners are the same. They, but when someone says they want to have that sense of belonging and that the gangs actually feed and fuel that, tell us, tell us why, give us a little bit of a glimpse into that culture so that people that don't have a clue can understand it. Because we look at it and go, man, you're just, y'all are just getting in trouble, man. Come on, why would you do that? There's more to it than that. Help educate us on what's, what's going on there. Yeah, um, the gang fulfilled that part of me that, that, that felt like I fit in, that I could be recognized, that I'm liked. It's a, a shared bond, like a brotherhood. You know, um, it wasn't until later when um, I'm doing my life sentence and I look back and I, I go, okay, what if things had gone right in my life? What if I had went to West Point? And then I contrasted that with the, my life in the gang. Like it probably, like being a, a soldier or being in the military would have still resolved that sense of fulfillment and fitting mm-hmm. in. And, you know, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not in any way saying the military and gangs are the same, but I'm just saying where that sense of fitting in and, and where that sense of fulfillment and recognition, um, that's where I, I could see some parallels in it. Yeah, no, I, I get it because I think human nature is, is they want to belong. I mean, part of the divisiveness that we see in our world and our country today is that people get extremely dogmatic about being a part of whatever they are, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, Mm -hmm. you know, we're business owners, you know, white, black, wealthy, poor. I mean, all those things is part of what feeds it. You just found that in, in the life of being in a gang. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that one has to, uh, you know, be, be that, you know, we know where that leads. So, so give us a real quick, let's go through that part real quickly up to the point of the event that led you into federal prison because you almost, it seemed to me from reading it, you couldn't quite break away from it, even though you were, part of you was trying, but you couldn't quite do that. Tell me if I'm right or wrong and give us a little mm-hmm. background there. Yeah, that'd be, I would say that's probably the best way to describe it because I think also humans inherently want to, like you say, fit in, but then are inherently good. They want to do something good. And I couldn't find where that good was. Like I, I just felt this is what I'm comfortable with. This is, this is part of my family. Now, this is how I have to protect my brothers. And this is how I have to protect my, my name and, and our, our reputation in the gang. Um, but yet there's another part of me that, you know, I want to still fulfill uh, that the hopes and the obligations that, that, that I can somehow have my father um, look down on me and say that, that I've done something with my life. Um, so there was always that constant conflict and struggle inside where I want to live up to my mother's expectations, but continuing to realize, you know, I, I let her down. I didn't make it to West Point. I, I'm not, I, I've already 
I'm already a convicted felon. I, I'm not doing well or, or, or I'm not, um, you know, I'm not successful and I, I can't even take care of my mom. And so all of those I can't sit with. So it's easier and more comfortable and easy for me to just settle and, and do what I want in a gang. And I could find my recognition there by inflicting violence and, and getting involved with um, whatever we were up to. Yeah, it's interesting as I was reading, I kept, there's a book that I read way back in high school. I don't know if you ever read it. It's an old, um, kind of a classic novel, but it's The Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. And and it basically, it describes, and it doesn't look very kindly on humans. You know, it's a group of young boys that get stranded on an island and they break up into two groups, gangs, groups, whatever. One group tries to establish law and order and, you know, whatever. And the other group kind of goes wild. <laughs> and and I don't know why, but as I was reading your background story, I kept thinking of Lord of the Flies in that the path you were going. Now, I knew where you were going. I knew where this path was leading because of the subtitle of the book, you know. So it wasn't like a novel. But uh, but it's it, it was fascinating to me just to see how that unfolded. Now, a couple things, though, that that are are really interesting. There is an incredible level of leadership that can be seen in that culture also and and also entrepreneurship and business mindedness and protecting people that are that you're responsible for. And now obviously it crosses a line, but maybe can you speak to a little bit of that in that culture? And really we're gonna, I think, look at that when we talk about being in prison also, but but just maybe leadership, business minded mindedness within the gang culture, because boy, they are creative. Yeah, sure. I could. Um, I mean, like- We're even, not trying to like glor- that- We're not trying to glorify it either. We're just, we're just, yeah, we're, yeah, no, we're learning just- from it. Yeah, yeah. Because I think there are some, you know, transferable um, traits or skills in it. Uh, when I was prosecuted and they tried me for the death penalty, um, they had said I took a leadership role, which I did. And I orchestrated and organized like how we were following the victims and then how we would ambush them on the freeway. And it was over a span of like 20, 25 miles. Um, inside the gang, you know, there's the structures of, this is how this is supposed to be run. Um, this has to be done this way. And there are rules like in the, even in the prison culture, uh, uh, these are rules you have to abide by. It's almost a sense of like honor or, or, or laws that we've created and you have to abide by these laws. But, you know, it's just the difference, the flip side of it, of it is if you're, if you break those laws and then there's consequences that usually end up with, with, that, with violence. Um, let's say even in prison, um, when I was at my worst in prison and, and, you know, in prison, they say this thing about hustling and everybody likes to get their hustle on. So, um, in particular, like by the time I had got to Solano, I was involved, um, we call it like the gambling rackets where we, uh, uh, I created a ticket and people would bet on the football tickets but it's run like a parlay ticket, but then I set up the odds to, you know, particularly be in my favor, the house's favor, but we basically became like the house and took all bets across the whole yard and then it ended up spanning into several yards, uh, you know, setting up a 
uh, what is it, a a runner per building to get the, the the beds, and then that laid the infrastructure to lay out the drug trade, the tobacco trade, the cell phones, and you know, so it just all became pretty elaborate on just you know what's on the surface seems. Oh, this is just people betting on some football games, but it was a lot deeper than that. Within the walls of a prison with guards yeah. and all of that was not allowed, correct? None of it was allowed. Right. So so there there does, gosh, there is some creativity there. It's a shame. I, I mean, I work with a lot of business people, Quan, and boy, I would love to see some of that energy from some of the people I work with to be able to, you know, just come up with that creativity and also... And again, I, I want to make sure we're not glorifying any of, uh, you know, gang, prison, anything like that. Uh, but uh, anyway, there's lessons to be learned there. There is something, as I was reading along either late last night or early this morning when I was trying to get through the book, that jumped out at me. And I can't remember exactly how you worded it. I know I highlighted it. I don't have it open in front of me. But there was a period of time when you were incarcerated and you were, tell us, tell us when you went in and when you came out. And I'm going to leave a lot of the details for people to read in the book, but give us just the real general how long you were there. And um, For this last case, I was in there for 16 years. I went in in 1999 and I paroled in uh, November of 2015. Okay. And what, and what areas did you spend? It's mostly California, correct? It was all California. Um, uh, these were state prisons. I know you said federal prison, but there was all state prisons. Okay. Um, okay. So it's all California. I started at Pelican Bay, then I went to Donovan, um, and then I was housed at Soledad, and then I ultimately paroled from Solano. Okay. And so, uh, so you spent that time there. At some point, not only when this was there was a word that you mentioned that started rearing up in you and that word was hope. And what I, I want to ask you to number one, talk about that. Maybe the time that you were in prison that you started feeling hope, but I also want to back up and go back to maybe the time from you were 13 on. Do you recall many times in your life where there was hope? I mean, was there hope when you were in and around the gang culture? I know you actually had a business, a corporate job for a period of time, and we're trying to do some college and things. Talk about maybe on a scale of one to 10, one being dismal, 10 being off the charts. Obviously, at the age of 13 on Mother's Day, your communion, your father dies. I'm guessing your level of hope would have been probably negative. Mm -hmm. And probably, you know, you go behind bars pretty low, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. But give me just a couple of touchstones along the way at where your level of hope might have been. All the way up to that point where you said in the book that all of a sudden you had some hope that maybe you weren't going to serve a life sentence. Yeah. Uh, so hope after my father passed away. Yeah, very dismal. Probably just like a little little candle that's about to flutter out um, throughout my whole life. Um, then in 1998, right before I committed the murder, uh, I was working at uh, the Gallup organization. Um, I became their 1998 interviewer of the year. 
and they asked me to take a management position. So when I took that management position, I think my hope level probably had went to about seven or eight, like the most hope I had ever felt my whole life. Like finally something's going to go right for once in my life. Um, their interviews are done, you know, just before the fame of their strengths finder studies. So they were already doing these strength finders with us in the interviews, but they, it was not published. And um, a couple months after I took the interview, they came back and they said, Quan, uh, we are sorry, but you are not a fit. And those are the exact words they use, but that's, you know, that's just how Gallup talked. But for me, it just reminded me, I am not a fit, like something's wrong with me. Um, now you had been in the juvenile, you had been in the juvenile system before that. Do you think that yes. in, that played into it? So it's funny you bring that up because I never once thought of that until actually when I went to, was found suitable at the parole board in 2015. The board parole commissioner told me that she said, "Had it ever once crossed in your mind that you weren't turned down because you weren't a fit, but because of your conviction by that time?" And I sat there and it just blew me away. Like, oh my God, after all these years, after all this work, I, that never once crossed my mind. I only thought of the worst possible thing. Yeah, so I remember that day when I was found suitable and she asked me that. This was after I was already found suitable. Like we're getting up and she's like, let me ask you something. Did it ever cross your mind? And I said, no. So I was there, I mean, so, so there's, a, there's a theme here of disappointments is mm -hmm. kind of what I'm seeing here. Disappointments with obviously your father, disappointments with not going to West Point, disappointments with this job, you know, and there, there may be others, but you know, did, was there a boiling over? Was there, I mean, what was going on as those sort of piled up? Because shortly after this situation with Gallup, you committed murder. I mean, you yeah. literally, you were still in gangs while you were working there, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, um, when, when I got turned down, it was just a pattern that I had already let, uh, uh, incorporated in my life where things are disappointing me, uh, arguments with my girlfriend or whatever it is, like things that I don't know how to resolve, I would use the gang as an outlet to vent. So it's, if instead of, you know, a normal healthy human being can just call someone and just say, or express to my girlfriend or express to a friend, yeah, this is what happened. Me and my girlfriend got in a fight or whatever. I'm just feeling a little upset and frustrated and this is what happened. Me instead by that time, I just shoved it into the dark corner with all the other feelings that I always hid and um, call up one of my friends from the gang and, oh, let's go out to the pool hall knowing damn well there's all this going on inside of me and looking for someone to take it out on oh that guy is looking at me wrong and then go and confront him and we end up in a fight all because i want to be able to vent and then and then feed this excitement because i think as long as there's excitement it it takes or numbs out everything else that's going on in my life um but being turned down at Gallup for me at the time, you know, and look back now, man, how could, how could I have just been so like weak and without any type of grit to, man, it's just a job interview to turn down. Like, but um, yeah, for me, I placed all my hope in it, whatever hope I had into that, things didn't go right. And um, I knew like, okay, I'm a failure in this part of my life, thinking that's a failure, but I knew where I could excel and be 
recognize and and regain some of that you know sense of uh, power that I lost um, and that's in the gang so we went to that club in Hollywood um, found out some of my friends got in a fight and suddenly I I take control hey where are they at let's go here and I wasn't even involved in the fight but I wanted and the, and the pro boy kept asking me why were you the one to want to pull this trigger and I said it's because of being turned down, I didn't know how to well to deal with it. I wanted to get rid of all of this, whatever's going on out on somebody. And at the same time, gain recognition and, and, and continue, I guess, to build on my reputation with the gang. So, when, when you, I was not going to ask this, so this is a question that just popped into my mind. When... Because, and again, we're, we're not going to ha- go through all the details so people can get the book, but when you uh, fired into the car with the intent to harm, kill, murder, whatever the intent was, and you may or may not known at that time that you had killed someone, but there was some time in the very near future after that where you found out that you had killed someone. Do you recall any thoughts, uh, remorse? Oh no, were you deadened to that on the inside? Was it just part of what you had to do? Was it your code of honor? Do you recall that at all? Because I'm, I'm actually trying to think through what mentally, your soul, what was going on when you yeah. found out you had taken someone's life? Um. I'm not sure exactly. I think like by that time, I, I, uh, my, my sense of like humanity was so much far gone out of me. I don't like when I'm even think about it, I think it was just so cold and callous. It was more, okay, somebody's died. There's a, there was an ugly prideful part of me. It was like, yes, I get another stripe. Like this is what I've, I've accomplished. I did something, you know, great. And then the other part is, okay, now I have to make sure I'm not caught. Let me outsmart the police. Let me make sure this doesn't happen and start trying to figure out what are the next steps? How do I go about this? So, yeah, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, like, I did not feel any sense of, or begin to feel any sense of remorse, probably 10, 12 years into the prison sentence. Wow. And it seems like, going back to the hope that we were talking about earlier, that the remorse began coming at about the time that the hope entered in. Is that, is that the time yeah. frames? Did I, did I read those right? So mm-hmm. now let's jump back to hope. We're, we're bouncing a little bit, but it's all coming together here. So 12, 10, 12 years into your prison sentence, all of a sudden some things begin to click. You're not, you're not running the gambling ring and bringing cell phones in to the prison anymore. Maybe you were, but you were starting to get out of that. And all of a sudden some things started happening. And to me, the observation is you started taking your eyes off yourself because you began helping and looking at other people. Is that correct? Did I put those pieces together from reading it? That's that's, uh, probably the best way to describe it. I mean, um, yeah, there was a whole bunch of things that led up to you know, creating this perfect storm in my mind and in my soul of, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then suddenly I get this small spark of hope. But um, 
yeah, it's, but then that, when that came in, it was more like 10 out of 10, this is hope. Like, and it wasn't even hope of going home. It was hope of, I am alive and hope of, I am okay with being here. I am where I'm supposed to be because this is how I um, can, can be in this world and make an impact right now. Right, That's, because I think there was there was someone named Donnie that I used the word discipled. He almost like coached or discipled you on some things. Yeah, we won't get into those details, but but you then started turning around and doing similar things to others. Tell me about that and what that did for you and how it what it did for your soul as you started focusing on that. Yeah, I I just noticed like when I help others like every time i started to feel like down or depressed i noticed if i get outside of myself and i do something for others it made me feel good inside for once it made me feel like i i mm. you know i i'm doing this for others and, and 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 it feels good um i after donnie kind of you know began me on my trajectory of change um and i'm you know, I, I've always been a bookworm, so I, I, I start soaking up these books on personal responsibility and choice and mindfulness. And, and I saw, like, this is how I want to show up in the world. This is how I want to lead my life. Um, I started sharing these same concepts with others around me uh, and go, going through it on a context of I'm helping them to find their freedom uh, a lot of the men scoffed at me at first because they said, this guy, who's this guy? He's never gone to the parole board. How can he help another man uh, to go home? But then the first, one of my first friends that I, I, I helped go in front of the parole board that went home, after that suddenly men wanted to sit down, like, what does he have? What is, um, and for me, I knew, you know, th their motivations were to go have me help them, help coach them to go to the parole board and to be found suitable. My um, motivation was, I have found this amazing secret uh, freedom inside already. And I want to get them to a place of understanding their choices in life and, and, and understanding what personal responsibility is and how to make amends before we ever even go home and get cultivate that mindset to, to continue to build and change the culture of this whole prison yard that we're on. So it just slowly seeing like little seeds that I'm planting and seeing where they're starting to sprout up and then seeing what they're learning and they're sharing with others. And I could just see like the whole fabric of prison life for me just changed while I was, while I was in there. Were you reading? I'd actually made a note about asking you about your reading habit also. Were yeah. you reading voraciously as it sounds like you were during certain yeah. times? Were you doing that? early on in your sentence? Did it pick up steam later? Uh, what was the, what was your reading habit maybe for the 15 years, 15, whatever years you were, you were incarcerated? Yeah, I, I have always been a bookworm. Like every prison I was at, I, I was known to read like three or four books simultaneously. Uh, but my reading habits in the beginning uh, more went with books on like on true crime drama and and mafia books and all these things and filling my mind or like uh, or like then later on like I love I love fantasy so I've always read fantasy and 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 go with them and then I'll read some of the classics of of, of just literature 
but it was mostly novels a lot of times. But then later on, uh, sometimes there was business books here and there. Uh, it was at um, Solano that I was really into a lot of business books. Um, I, you know, I remember following the Wall Street Journal's um, bestsellers list and look at that and kind of pick about certain books and I get those books sent in or I ask for it at the library if they don't have it. I get somebody outside to send it in for me and those books would feed me. But then, yeah, when the light came on though, it was all, you know, personal development or business. And then I'm understanding about, let's say when I started to uh, see a therapist regarding my father's death, I get engrossed about books on grief and loss. Um, when I get, uh, began facilitating groups on victims awareness and, and, and those concepts, I was very engrossed on books of restorative justice movement and how do they contribute to um, things. So yeah, I just, and I just poured myself into it and I just started learning, but not only learning and then I looked at this as, you know what, this is a perfect opportunity to apply this lesson in this book to my life out here. And that's how I just approached each day, like every morning waking up, like what does God have in store for me today to learn about myself or how can I help somebody along their journey or how can I run into somebody to teach me something else about myself? And so every day was just became a new, um, a new, a new day for, for me to become better. And that's just, just how I looked at it. Yeah, that was good. You know, I wanted to ask at some point, uh, you mentioned that you picked up the Bible, but what was your spiritual mindset? We already mentioned earlier that you were disappointed at the age of 13 mm -hmm. when you lifted up a prayer to the Lord and it seemed as if he did not answer that prayer or ignored you or didn't care for you or whatever. So at some point there was a spiritual journey and we all, we're all going through a spiritual journey anyway, but... Mm -hmm. Was that, did that coincide with the hope and other things going on? Was there other things happening? I mean, see, I also believe you were like tilling the soil with the reading because one can't be reading, especially quality type things and not have your soul just prepared for something new. So talk a little bit about your spiritual growth and then I have yeah. a few more questions before we begin wrapping up. Um, yeah, it, it was... Yeah, in the book I detail, just one day I just picked up the a Bible and a whole pile of discarded books. And like, whoa, I looked and then I started reading and I saw these themes that were so in alignment with how, suddenly how I saw the world and how I wanted to live. Um, and I don't know, suddenly I went back and started reading more. And then, then I looked back even on my faith and read into the catechism um, of the church and then just reading about... Uh, uh, other other books that were written by other uh, Christians, um, yeah. I, I during that time it was just it just became for me. This is our faith, and we're saying there's one God, and this is the faith, and you know, understanding God did not kill my father, and God didn't do this, and and you know, the I even I even read during that time, you know, Buddhist books. Um, uh, uh, books by uh, I, the, the Bhagavad Gita and the, there's just all these different spiritual books and I saw 
understand like all of these religions or all of these spiritual practices talk about just treating you know, like inherently treating other humans right and, and and there's a goodness in all of us and that's what we're trying to look for and suddenly for me i just go okay i um yeah this is my this is my own spiritual journey here that i i'm going through you know especially when they talk about the uh the death of the old self to come up with the new and those so all these things tied in together like this is what I, I think I am experiencing at this time. Yeah, that's good. You know, um, one of the foundations of Christianity is that we are forgiven of our sins. Mm -hmm. And we know in going back to Mosaic law that thou shall not kill is one of the basics of the law. And I know that there are probably still many in the church that would judge what you did, do you believe that you have been forgiven of that sin of thou shalt not murder? Yes. Um, I held on to that for a long time. It was uh, this label I held on to, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer. Um, and it wasn't until I had this one workshop where we had to write on uh, 10 slips of paper, like describe yourself, who are you? And I wrote, I'm a brother, I'm a son. And one of the things I wrote down, it was murderer. And they did the exercise where they asked me to crumble up that, that word and I look at it. And I remember reading murder to ask, crumble up and drop it and imagine it not being a part of my identity. How does it feel and how, and when I did that is when I realized like, why am I holding onto this part? This is still a form of arrogance to say that, especially if I'm saying this is what my faith uh, says, that we can be forgiven for everything, then who am I to say I, I've done the most terrible thing? And if God says I can be forgiven. So um, that's when I first realized, why do I need to hold on to this label? And I realized I don't. Um, I can describe myself in those harsh terms, and then I could feel sorry for myself forever. And I just say, I'm a murderer, I can't be redeemed. Then what good does that do to the world? Or I could just say, this is where I can begin to forgive myself. I am a human being. I did commit murder, yes, but I am not a murderer. And I can be forgiven. You know, and it wasn't like, okay, right then I realized I'm forgiven. No, it was more like, okay, this is what I believe now. Then suddenly when the next time I judge myself harshly or even worse, when I'm judging somebody else, that's when I, and it makes me remind myself, wait, step back. You know, Quan, you've done the worst of all things. You cannot judge that man. Or, or you know what? Um, here you go again, Quan, like judging yourself and 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 going against the principles of our faith. Uh, so it's just constant refinement of it. Yeah, that is that is so good. Which, which also means, and listen, in the world we're in, it is definitely possible that others will judge us. Mm -hmm. And people will judge you, but we're commanded to judge not, lest we be judged. And so, I, oh, that's so powerful. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to, number one, to ask that question, especially in kind of the direct way that I did. I hope it, anyway, I think people would know kind of what my heart is because I wanted to hear you speak it in that way because it was powerful the way you said it, and there's much that we can learn from it. You mentioned 
the uh, you studied some of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the five stages of death, and it kind of led to it revealed some things about personal responsibility. And you you were able to any everything I saw you do in the book, you were in some form of a leadership or a very a very much a role that gave you the ability to observe a lot of things. And you observe some things related to those stages of death and personal responsibility that really unlocked a lot of keys for you. And it sounds as if you're now helping some others that are in prison do the same thing. Could you talk through that some? Because I also believe those are principles that apply outside of prison walls about taking personal responsibility and 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 I'll I'll I may ask a follow up, but talk a little bit about that because I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah, uh, for me it it became and it always became the backdrop of reading a a, per, a prisoner's parole hearing transcripts. What they say in there was never the same as exactly when a a person described to me like oh yeah I went to the parole board I got denied. And it was because of this, this, and this, and this. And it was always this sense, especially later on when I became very mindful of listening and just hearing the words people were using, it gave me a very intimate glimpse of how they saw themselves in the world. If they saw themselves from a place of, I'm a victim, I'm a continuous victim. And sometimes it's very subtle. They don't even realize it. Um, Or... You know, the simple, like a simple example would be, you know, in prison, uh, two guys argue, end up getting a fight or whatever, and it's because he made me mad. Or, and then the simple one just could just be, you know what, I feel upset by what he said. Like, I'm owning this for my side of the fence, my feelings, instead of blaming the other person. So I think instead of saying, he makes me mad, or Tim, you make me mad then I'm giving all that power to you or to Tim. But if I can understand what Tim said scares me or hurts me, then I can acknowledge that, sit down and let it go. And then there's, I own my feelings. I own my choices. I own the way I speak to people. And now I, I can own how I show up in the world, whether that's, um, you know, moving through it with, I choose my way each day today. And it's, it was for me a sense of such liberating purpose because I can just choose my way through every conflict that's coming on, whether it's my mind uh, 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 saying crazy things, my thoughts or other people saying things, I could still choose to find my way through all of this. And that's the only way I could describe it for myself. Yeah, that's good. So, so my follow-up question is... How does that apply to people, business people, uh, you know, entrepreneurs? Maybe even one of the things I noticed you discuss quite a bit the racial uh, challenges and struggles in prisons. But at the time we're recording this, we're seeing that outside of the prison walls too, and and in many ways that. I think it can spill into it, but to give us some lessons that those outside the prison walls might learn from what you just talked about with the personal responsibility. Maybe you've seen them, maybe, maybe not, but just uh, they apply to everything, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, let's just say, okay, um, a, a simple example that I see out here, let's say I'm in the Costco line and someone just cuts in front of me. I can choose right then like to tell myself, hey, this guy cut in front, he's rude, he's this, he's that. Or I could just choose to say, you know what, or, or just choose to take a step back. Yes, this person bothered me. And yes, this is, uh, uh, I'm frustrated. But then I think once I can say that, then I, it also makes me easier to say, you know what, there must be something going on in that person's life for them to be this way. And it just, I don't know. Or um, one with, um, I, let's say I get upset with my mom for something and owning that and just telling her like, okay, this is what happened and this is how I feel and this is what I would just like instead of just screaming and then uh, blaming her oh you always do this um have and it in your business i do that yeah have it or, in your oh, business yeah. your company you've started yeah i mean i i i'm human like uh, uh sometimes i i've messed up on some of the the payroll checks for the guys so you know i can and they're texting me and i'm in the middle of a meeting and they're, they, they're saying something i say oh my goodness i forgot so it's just own it right there you know what i'm absolutely sorry i forgot and don't make any excuses yeah. about it. Instead of yeah, I was I was busy, da, 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 and I think I just think it takes away for me. There's just more power and just saying, I'm sorry, I forgot, or just get right to it. This is what happened. I apologize. I will correct it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's excellent. And I, there's probably so many more there that we could discuss. But I love that taking responsibility. It seems as if that's getting in short supply in our culture. The more advanced we get, yeah. the more knowledge and access we have to internet, everything is like more and more victim mindset is what is the words that I use. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. What are I mean you you kind of, we won't go into it here, but it was it was incredible how you were released. I mean you were you had a life sentence and you're not in prison now. So I'm going to leave yeah. that for people to get the book but what are maybe another lesson or two that you have taken from your experience uh in prison and and while you were in that setting a few lessons that you can share with the audience uh let me see one would probably be like even if the world says it cannot be done um just don't automatically buy into it whether that was in prison i experienced it and whether out here i've also experienced like people in prison said oh you can't do that it's always been this way and then even when i started to come home that's not how things are done out here you don't know you've never mm -hmm. uh, uh, you haven't been home long enough but then yet i just still I, I just go with like this feels right in my gut this is what my intuition tells me yeah yeah that's very good so all right Tell us, we, we dwelled a lot on prison and things like that. That's part of your story, and you're probably going to get that a lot from people because it's unique with a lot of people that want to talk to you and different. But tell us a little bit more about Defy Ventures and what you're doing with them. And, and then I'm going to ask you one last question before we finish up here and uh and go from there so tell tell us what you're doing now i know you've got your own company but you also are doing some cool things with defy ventures yeah so uh defy ventures like i mentioned earlier is a nonprofit that helps men and women uh transform their lives through entrepreneurship i was a participant in the program um i came home stayed involved with them and that's how i created my company but when they expanded out here to southern california 
uh, they asked if I would want to jump on board to help build out uh, what the post-release program is. And um, that was about two and a half years ago. I, and I jumped on with them. Um, now I get to help the men and women that are coming home in their reentry uh, journey, um, you know, get connected to employment partnerships, get referred for resources, get um, welcome to our community of supporters and other uh, men and women that have come home, plus other entrepreneurs. And it's, we've just built a community to support and um, to make them feel like, okay, uh, there, this is a group of people that's ready and willing to help support you on this. That's awesome. I, I do love, even in the times that you were not necessarily making the choices that you would say were leading to good things, you really do rise to a role of leadership or support, it seems to me, in just about everything you do. And that that's impressive to me. So, Thank you for doing that. One other thing that I wanted to ask about from the book, you wrote out a, um, you had in there a personal mission statement, which to me, I just want to tell people that it's worth the getting the book just to read through it. But give me just a glimpse, give the audience just a glimpse of where that came from, how it came to be. Uh, you don't have to give it to people. They need to get the book to see that. But but how did it come to be? I mean, if you want to give a few sentences or two, that's cool. Yeah. But, uh, um, well, it became for me, um, I call it your inner jewel. And I used, I, it was became a mantra that I wanted, like, first, like, I, I read a book and I go, what do I like about this? Or little lessons from certain books I read. And I just wrote it down and I just in my own words or I paraphrased whatever. But then it was one day because I had a whole list of different things like some things like practice mindfulness, listen twice as much as you speak, uh, effectiveness with people, efficiency with everything else, uh, laugh at life. Like there are all these things that I wanted to make as parameters for my life and how I wanted to lead each day. But then um, I don't know, as I wrote then I go, one, let me see what this looks like. And I just kind of shaped it into a form of a jewel. So then that's when I called it your inner jewel. And I printed it, I taped it to my bunk. I made an extra copy, put it in my um, my book bag just to carry it. And it just for me every day, this is, this is how I want to set my intention each day. And this is how I want to live. Like these are the parameters in which I want to live by. And that was like oh, my, well. became like my, my inner compass, I guess, or my, North Star, or however you want to call it, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Again, worth worth getting the book just for that. There's a lot of other great stuff in there, but definitely for that. Quan, how can people connect with you and also tell us where to get the book? So let everybody know. I know it's released now, and by the time people listen to the podcast, it'll be out for a little while, but where can they find the book and connect with you? Sure, they can get the book on uh, Amazon. They can get it on Audible, uh, Barnes & Noble, they can get it right off our, uh, my website. Um, people can find me at all the social media. It's at Quan X Huyn. So Q-U-A-N-X and then H-U-Y-N-H. That's Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, LinkedIn. And uh, my website is the same thing, uh, www.quanxhuyn.com. 
But then if it's that last name is hard to spell, you could also just type in sparrow in the razorwire.com and it will point you straight to the website. Cause I figured right. it's not that easy to spell. So. Excellent. What's next for you, Quan? What's next? Either short term, long term? What's what's coming up? Uh, well, sh short term is we're actually in the process of um, my cleaning company. We're on the process of uh, training, interviewing, training, and onboarding like 24, 28 new uh, uh, full-time employees nationally. So I'm okay. Now, not if. When I pull this off, that that's that's probably next. But um, next is also just seeing where this book launch goes. But I think uh, long term, uh, I'm not sure. Like, just see, I think I just see what the universe or what God opens up for me next. Like, how can I still uh, look for a way to serve and help and make an impact? So, yeah, that's good. The title of this podcast is "Seek, Go, Create." Those three words, which one of those words resonates with you, maybe jumps out, and why? Last question. Create, uh, because I think we can continue to create a new destiny each day. Like, yeah, I might slip today. Tomorrow I could create a new uh, way by choosing something else. So create wow. would have to be it. Quan, I so appreciate you joining us on the podcast. This was such a rich and deep conversation. Thanks so much for sharing with us. I would love for all of you to go to SeekGoCreate.com just to comment on this episode. Give me your thoughts. Give some feedback. All you need to do is go visit the site, SeekGoCreate.com. And while you're there, make sure you give us your best email address. Just be part of the community so that we can make sure you never miss an episode, get you some bonus materials, and, and just keep you up to date on all that's doing. But I really would love for you to comment on all that we discussed today and just let me know your thoughts. I mean, these were some, this was some deep conversation that we had. And, uh, and listen, make sure you're staying tuned. Next week, we have someone that actually worked for NASA. They actually in, they, they've worked in logistics. They've worked in 16 countries all over the world. But one of their specialties or expertise uh, or areas of expertise is being able to help us better understand ourselves, our temperaments, and why we do what we do. It's actually a great follow-up episode to what we have had today. So make sure you tune in and listen in to Seek Go Create in the near future. We'll see you soon. <laughs>